Father, we love you. You're a wonderful God. Um, you do amazing things for us. Uh, thank you for um, preserving this book for, for 2,000 years so that we could sit here this very morning in this room and study it and learn what it means for us. Um, give us first century eyes. Help us to understand the context in which it was written, the intent of the author when they were put in the pen to the paper. And um, uh, let us be able to grasp the truths that are being hammered out here. And um, let us learn how to apply it in this, in this 21st century world, God. It's a very difficult thing to do, but um, we need that wisdom, that insight. Um, may these be your words this morning. May, may I never force anything into the interpretation that, that shouldn't be there so that it can, it can be on my agenda. Lord, we want to be on yours. We want to find your truth and submit to them. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so read with me. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Why don't we read to verse 9, and we're going to cover that, and then we'll read the rest a little later. Starting at verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So, uh, we're going to talk about this first off. In in the previous chapter, um, it's as if he had just come from... Um, from Greece, he was in Athens, and he, was, he went to meet with all the philosophers at Mars Hill, and, and he gives this big, deep theological speech. And uh, he, he uses their wisdom, he uses their um, intellectual ideas, their own authors. Um, he made a quote from Epimenides. He um, said some very brilliant things, and it made less of an impact than it, would, than, than it did all the other times that he actually just told the story of Jesus and who Jesus was. And so he comes marching into this city, and he says, and then he starts off chapter 1 and says, When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony, um, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He says, instead, I decided to just give the simple story, emotional story of Jesus, because it's much more powerful than the, than, than the wisdom that, that the Greeks focused on in their minds. Um, and so he has just spent a lot of time sort of saying, the message of Jesus is very, very simple. It's very plain. It's very down-to-earth. The simplest person... Can, can grasp it. Um, and then it's sort of like he offers a disclaimer here. Um, he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So he says, yes, it's incredibly simple. It's very, 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 very simple, easy to understand. It's not just for the highly educated upper class. It is for the simpleton. But there is a wisdom which we do impart. Um, he gives it like, it's sort of, sort of like a disclaimer. Don't think that, that there's nothing there, really. If you dig down deep, there really is a lot there. He's saying that there's things that need to be grasped and taken in before you can possibly move into the deeper stuff. You have to get to the baseline stuff there first, the base level teachings of Christ, um, the basic gospel before you can move into the deeper stuff. And you have to build a frame, basically, before you can furnish the house. So he's trying to get them to build their frame on which their, 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 the gospel is, and, and everything is going to be filled inside that. Um, and so he also says in verse 7, it's not wisdom of this age. Uh, it's, it's a wisdom which God has decreed before the age. Verse 8, he says, none of the rulers understood it. Um, what he's saying is, it, it, it's, it, it's not something that the human beings could come up with. It, the, the wisdom that is the deep wisdom of Christianity, it, it is never something which just the normal everyday human being would grasp without the help of God, without 
really understanding God. And how do we learn that? Well, we study the life of Christ and we see how it was different from everybody else's. He's saying that the wisdom was not dreamed up by human minds. It's been conjured up in the mind of God before we were even here. The things he says here are, are, are really quite beautiful. We impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So this really, really deep, profound wisdom um, was born into the mind of God before you were even existed, before any of us did, before the world existed, before the universe existed. The mind of God was already contemplating how things should be. Because he knows how things should be, because he's created all of this. And so he's, he's using that to create the framework in which we were supposed to be living in here. So, um, <clears throat> and he says, and the thing is, it's always been there. It's always been sort of in the heart of man, but none of the rulers understood it, is what he says there. He says, verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He says, it's always been there, but it's just people have never understood it. They've always known there was a certain way to live, but they just couldn't do it. It's something which can only be understood in light of Jesus. If you look at the life of Christ, the the decisions that he made, the things that he did are so backwards and upside down from how you would think um, things should be done. This is what threw the Jewish people off. This is what made them not quite understand because they thought their Messiah was going to come through might and power and, and, and the things that humans rely upon, overthrow the kingdom, unenslave the people, um just completely set up his kingdom by force, which it seems how the human mind comprehends things. But he didn't. It was completely upside down. He said things like, the first will be the last, the last will be first. If you humble yourself, you're going to be lifted up. If you want to live, you have to die. Rejoice in sorrows. Sing in prison. The things that he said don't make a lot of sense in the mind of the human um, there's a passage in Proverbs that, 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 I, that I read this week that goes right in with this. Um, I think I... Oh, i got a lot of blank slides again. I don't know what I do. I do this a lot. Um, the passage goes like this. It says, The one who scatters will increase. The one who withholds will end in poverty. In other words, the one who has a lot. If he scatters it, he'll get more. But if he hoards it, if he holds on to it, he's going to end in poverty, die in poverty. It's brilliant. It, the, the ways that, um, that Christ has taught us to live that doesn't seem to make sense in this human world. Um, it's a way of thinking and living and seeing that goes against the very nature that is in us. We, could, we, we can't grasp it, so God decided to show us personally how it's done. I mean, he put it in our hearts. He taught it. He put it into the law. He wrote it in there over and over and over. And, and the people couldn't grasp it. And so he says, you know what? I'm just going to go show them how it's done. Puts on human flesh born into the world, and lives it out. And only then can we truly see how all of this is supposed to work. It can only be understood through the life of Christ. And so this passage introduces a distinct difference, uh, a distinction between different kinds of Christian instruction. So there's two different types of Christian teaching. Um, And this is something that I I don't think has really been taught a lot, but it it is vital. If you look at the... the, uh, the ancient theologians for the last uh, few centuries, they used to write about this, but you don't talk about this anymore, how there's, there's really sort of two levels of, of, of Christian teachings. Um, and this was a big deal in the first century, um, but it's sort of been forgotten now. Um, the first, you know, is the, is the basic teaching about who Jesus was. Um, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, God in human flesh, 
Um, just, you know, the basic tenets of Christian faith, the closed-handed issues upon which all Christians agree, is the things that make you a Christian. They're very simple, they're very easy to grasp, and um, very uneducated people all over the world for, for thousands of years have held on to these things and have been able to grasp them. Um, it is incredibly deep, but it's also incredibly simple at the same time. Um, it's the very basic teachings. Um, so then there's this other kind of teaching. Um, there are things which are, which are really hard to grasp. Um, these are the things that you see people debating over. We used to have a group called Cigar and Theology. We've, there's been rumblings of it starting up again. I don't know. That's fine. Um, but, it's, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was a bunch of people. They, they gathered in, in, a, in, a, in a cigar bar, and, and they would talk about the really deep theological concepts that are very hard to grasp, and they would debate about them and argue about them and sharpen each other's swords. It's very, very, very important to do that. Um, so these are the things which are the objects of debate. They're theoretical theories. Um, if you've ever studied, if you go to seminary, you're going you're to study theories of atonement, all these different theories of atonement. Um, different schools of thought. There's different modes of interpreting scriptures. Um, a lot of times, if these things are taught to Christians who aren't ready to hear them, they become very difficult. They can become a stumbling block. And Paul knew this. Um, and, and this is sort of what he's talking about here. He talks about it several other places. Um, it can lead to things like pride, because wisdom is to be accepted with humility. It's, it's, it's to be um, grasped, knowing that there's always more. And, and, and if you're a student of theology, it, it's funny, because the more you learn, the more you realize you have no idea. The more you realize just how little you know. So if you're a first-year Bible student... I, I've always said there's nothing more dangerous than a first-year Bible student. They're very zealous. They've got some brand-new information. They're really stoked about it, and they, they think they know everything. So they come in, they start arguing with people, and then uh, they just get the rug pulled out from underneath them. Um, and I've seen people leave. I've seen them burn out and leave. Um, it can lead to pride. It can lead to doubt. Differences that come to, that, that come to light oftentimes um, because young believers, they, they think that, that Christianity is splintered and divided once they get in and see all these different interpretations of all these different passages. They come to think, well, then nobody has any idea what this means. No, they do. There's also, there's also different modes of interpretation. There's, there's midrash arguments. There's all kinds of things. Um, uh, it can cause doubt because instead of seeing a healthy scholastic um, and sometimes cultural differences in how we study, we tend to see, well, these people disagree on everything. Um, it can cause confusion. Um, if you've been reading certain passages for, in, a, in a very, very literal way, and then you find out that this particular passage you've been reading in a literal way was actually um, poetic and it was written like this, and you can compare it with outside um, secular texts that look exactly like it, and they actually, you find out, oh, they, they mimicked that to make an argument about the oneness of God and about the holiness of God and how there's the incarnation of God. And, and sometimes people see this, and they take those kind of ideas and they start applying them all over Scripture, and it, it completely destroys their faith. Um, so Paul says there's, there's, there's different kinds of teaching. There's the very, very basic teaching, and, there's, and then there's the deeper teaching. Actually, the early Christian communities had a name for these things. The first one was called kerygma. Um, it, and this word basically means a herald's announcement from the king. The plain facts of Christianity. The very, very plain ideas of Christianity that, that we all hold to, that, that people don't argue about. Um, now, the, the, the second school of thought, after, after really grasping these and moving on to the deeper teachings, was called the Didache. Um, and that means simply the teaching. Uh, it's explanations for all of these really deep facts. It was actually, um, archaeologists have found lots of manuscripts of this ancient first century church book called the Didache. Um, it was, it, it, it's sort of was instructions on how to do worship ceremonies, how to, um, how to do your weekly gatherings, how to baptize, how to give communion, 
um, how to order a church. Um, but this, this, this term has other, other wider ranges of use also. Um, it was the deeper teaching. It was the Didache students in the, in the church who were the sort of, um, they grasped it right away, the early, the kerygma teachings, and they had moved on to learn the deeper things, the deeper meanings, the things behind the main things. And to argue about them and debate them and to really figure out what they mean, it's a form of worship. It's a very important form of worship that has um, done very important things for the church for thousands of years now. Um, it was the second stage for those who have grasped and understood the foundational means of the gospel. So he says in verse 6, he says, Yet among the mature, um, we do impart wisdom. This word mature is this Greek word um, tel- uh, teleoi. Now basically it means a person or animal who has reached the height of physical development. Uh, we've seen this word used before. Um, it's somebody who has become what they were, I guess, designed to be. Um, what they were meant to be. Um, a fully grown animal, a fully grown human, the height of maturity. Um, someone who is there. And so Paul says, among the ones who have grown up and are where they are supposed to be, then we teach the deeper things of Christianity. Um, now, uh, it basically describes a student who, he, and he's basically saying, he's saying, he's saying, out in the streets we talk about basic Christianity. When people um, are more mature, we can give them these deeper teachings about what all of those facts mean. So some of you in this room are kerygma, others of you are, are didache, um, and one is not more important than the other. Both are incredibly important. And, and the thing I've actually come to realize is a lot of the kerygma students, the, the, the sort of beginners in the faith, have such a more eloquent way of describing the gospel than the deeper students, than, than the didache students. And so they actually have a better ministry of evangelism because they're where the other people are and they can just speak it in plain facts, in plain English. Um, and uh, typically the, the didache students, are it's important for them to head into the the scholastic fields to argue against the people who are writing against Christianity and, and, um, and saying things about it which are deceiving. Um, and so both are vitally, vitally important. One is not more important than the other. You shouldn't be looking um, at these words right now and, and saying things like, in, in your mind, that's where I am. I'm, I'm a little more advanced. Yay me. You shouldn't be doing that because all, all of a sudden I, I think you, you, you may have just realized that you're not as advanced as you think you are. Because it really is all about humility. Um, as with most of the Western Christianity, uh, as Western Christianity and, and the Western church, many Christians, um, and I've met some in this church too, um, they're perfectly content to remain kerygma students, and this is a problem. They're perfectly content to just remain in the, just the general surface-level Christianity. They never dive into the deep... Theology. There are entire denominations which are very surface level that never lead, um, that, that, have, that have hundreds of thousands of people in them, uh, thousands of churches underneath them, and, and aren't leading people into the deeper areas of, of study. It's, it's very, very important that we do this. You should be feasting on the deeper truths, um, but you're content simply instead in your own salvation. And you walk around saying, I'm saved, what does it matter? I'm forgiven, what does it matter? It matters. Um, you haven't strived for the deeper meaning in anything. As a matter of fact, you, you kind of look down sometimes on those who delve deeper. And, and I, you know, I, I myself, when I, I remember being guilty of this kind of thing, I, I hear people talking in deep theological terms, and, and I didn't know much at the time, and I would say things like, oh, they're making everything so much more difficult than it has to be. And, and, that's, and I, w- I, w- I would talk down about it, um, maybe out of pride, maybe out of ignorance, maybe out of jealousy. Um, and then it also works on, on the other way, too. A lot of the dedicated Christians, the more mature Christians who are delving deeper, they refuse to sort of spiritually feast with those who are not where they are. 
you get a sense that you should be somewhere else studying with other people who know a lot more. Um, when you're in the presence of the less mature Christians, you dominate the conversation, you flaunt your knowledge, you correct others, you show pride um, that you never would have shown in the presence of the other Didache crowd, if you will. Um, there's always these pitfalls to be avoided in Christianity. Always. In all things humility. In all things grace. In all things mercy. In all things lifting the other person up. This is how Christianity is supposed to work. This is how we're supposed to learn. Um, humility is demanded of us. We must always see the importance of all of the family members around us and strive for their encouragement. So that is the gist of the first sort of passage there. He, this is basically what he's saying. Um, that we keep studying, we keep learning. So then he moves on to another passage here, and let's read this. Let's read the second half, um, starting at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have, not, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. The, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, I love this passage. There's some amazing things in this passage. Um, there's some Greek here which needs to be flushed out that we need to understand. There's some culture and some context here that might shift how you look at something um, a little bit. A couple of words you always read in the scriptures and interpret a certain way. They might actually be intended to interpret another way. So, um, but not always. So, use discernment. So, let's look at this. Um, We've all seen, I'm going to start with this, we've all seen, I'm just going to say Disney movies, um, cartoons with animals talking, right? Typically how they go. Um, there's, there's particular ones where I've seen this a lot, ones like Pocahontas, um, yes, I've seen that. Um, Brother Bear, particularly bad one. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> um, and, and there's something that, that they talk about here, they, they always, you have the, the Native American man saying... The spirits of the animal, the spirit of the eagle, the spirit of the bear. Um, and they say things like, the spirit of the animal. Um, this is actually a very ancient idea. Um, the animals have spirits. Um, it's a little bit, in, in the Greek, it was, a regular, it was a regular kind of talking, but it's not the same thing as sort of the spirit or the soul of a human. Um, we, need to, we need to open this up and talk about it. Uh, the, 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 the Greeks had very specific beliefs regarding spirits, um, especially... The Christian Greeks, all right? So, there was three parts, um, sort of, of, of life beings, if you will. There's pneuma, which is the spirit. There was the suke, which is the soul. And there's the body, which is soma. Now, what gets a little confusing is the first two, in English, in Western English, um, our, our, our definitions are kind of opposite. Um, pneuma, when we say pneuma, we're more referring to what we would call the soul. Um, the Greeks referred to it as the spirit. Um, suke is more what we would refer to as sort of life, just consciousness. Um, they referred to it as the soul. So I'm going to read some stuff here, and you're going to say animals and souls. Animals have souls. It's not, I'm talking Greek now. I'm not talking English. Um, and so let me, let me explain this. The soul and the spirit are not the same thing. 
you may have heard this somewhere. Um, the soul and the spirit are not the same thing. We, we tend to think that, that, that a person is only two parts, the body and the soul. Um, but we're talking Greek here. We're not talking English. The soul and the spirit were not the same thing in Greek thought. Um, they, were, they were not interchangeable like they are now. They have different meanings. They had definitive theological implications. And the best way I can describe it is to sort of um, spell this out for you like this. Um, plants and trees, they have soma, the body. Um, they're physically there. They're growing. You know they're alive. But they're not alive like an animal's alive. They, they just have a body. They, they're alive. They grow. They die. They reproduce. They die. That's all they do. They don't think. They just have a body. Okay? Um, animals have what the Greeks would say, soma and suke. The, the Greeks would say that they, animals have body and soul. Again, not soul like we say. Body and soul. Um, so soma and suke. In other words, they have a body just like a plant has, like a tree has, um, but they have consciousness. They can think. Um, they can't reason, but they can think. Um, they can make decisions. They, they can uh, communicate. Um, they can, you know, in general, um, show emotion, argue, fight, um, bite each other, stuff like that. Um, so, you're with me so far, I hope. Um, human beings, vastly different than everything else in creation in the Greek mindset. Um, human beings have a body. They have a suke, a soul, which we would more refer to as just life. Um, and they have a pneuma, which Paul interpreted, which, which they called the spirit. Again, we would call the soul. So, humans have soma, suke, and pneuma. They have a body. They have consciousness. They also have what Paul would argue is something else. Um, they have everything the animals have that all of creation has, but they also have identity. They are self-aware. They can think. They can reason. They can ponder their existence. Um, they, can, they can make choices between right and wrong. They are morally aware. Um, Christians argue that this part of the person lives on forever, eternally. Never goes away. Um, that it has eternal life, and it contributes to, the eternal, to eternal matters, um, both positive and negative. Um, in other words, the decisions that you make ring through eternity. You are doing work now that will matter forever. Um, sometimes we call this sort of eternal life. Yes, eternal life also does mean living on forever, but it also means when we become a Christian, we step into that eternal life now. And when I do good now, I'm actually working for the future kingdom. I'm doing eternal work. I have an eternal life. So it's, it's this whole different way of thinking. Now, the only other being in all of the universe that ever had this was who? Jesus. God. We share something with God, the pneuma. We share a pneuma with God. God is the only other creature in existence that has this. We know this. We are made in his image. We've known we have something in common with God. All right? Um, so Paul brings these three incredibly Greek ideas into this conversation. And he says that God has a pneuma, just like us. And, and we know this because we're made in the image of God. Um, he's the only other thing in the universe that's like us. We have this connection. Um, he also says that God's pneuma interacts with our pneuma. Read this passage again, starting in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything. The Spirit is that word uh, pneuma. Even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the, the pneuma of that person, which is in him. So also, no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the pneuma of God. 
Now, we have not received, we have received not the pneuma of the world, but the pneuma who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit of God, the pneuma of God. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So, he's saying that God's spirit connects with our spirit. God's pneuma connects with our pneuma and talks to us, communicates to us. I know there's times in your life, if you're a follower of Christ, where you have felt this. I, I've, I've, know, I know, I, I've known people that um, were not followers of Christ at all, that were not Christians, that were sort of agnostics, and they began their search after they felt like God was just talking to them, like God was trying to get a hold of them. Something was pricking at their heart, pulling them closer. All right? Um, he, says that, that, he says that God's pneuma interacts with our pneuma. The scriptures say that there's all kinds of ways that this happens. All right, prayer, meditation on scriptures. That's why we exercise this, the spiritual disciplines. Um, confession, communion, intercessory prayer. There's a brilliant one I found here in Psalm 42. When I hear the roar of the waterfall, deep calls to deep. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. You know what he's saying? I was in nature, and I was standing before a giant waterfall, and I felt the Spirit of God talk to me. I felt it connect with mine, and I got emotional. And I felt like that water was just turning into an ocean, and the waves were overtaking me. We felt like this at certain times. I remember I, I have two or three specific times in my life. One of them happened in Ybor City where I was sitting on a park bench waiting for somebody, and I was listening to this song. I don't know what it was. It was just building up, some kind of explosions in the sky or something. It was just building and all of a sudden, it started raining. And I felt my soul being connected to by God. And he was encouraging me and talking to me and saying, I just want you to know I'm here. Maybe you felt this a couple of times. Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon and you felt something like that. You've been just somewhere beautiful. Um, when I hear the roar of the waterfall, deep calls to deep. We all know that in nature, God sometimes cries out to our souls. Why do you think, you ever thought about this? Why do people in the evening when the sun's going down go to the beach? They go there, and they line up to watch the sun go down. Is anyone else there? No animals? Birds? You ever, you ever see a dog sitting there pondering? <laughs> like, that'd be really, really weird if you go out and you see all these people lined up, and then there's also, like, animals there. And we're all just... It's a good one. I knew it was going to be good because it rained, and it's, it's a good one. And we're just... Why do we do that? Because there is something in nature that is calling out, calling out to us about the beauty of God. I mean, the scriptures have written about this, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. It's, it's, it's so, it, it hits you like a ton of bricks when you feel it, all right? Um, we have a pneuma. Animals don't. The birds are flying the other way. We're looking at that. We're different. He says in verse 12, um, that God gave this to us so that we might freely understand the things given to us by God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Um, he follows this up in verse 13, that this belief is not taught by the world. Oh, just got a text. Hey. <laughs> My bad. Um, and then he says, uh, yeah, so he says in verse 13 that this belief is not taught by the world. And then he builds this contrast. And this is where it gets awesome to me. This is what I see. Um, he builds this contrast here after this. 
Um, and Paul says that just like there's two types of Christians, there's two types of persons. And both of these words are in this passage. It starts off by saying there is pneumaticoi, someone who is sensitive to the spirits. Um, someone who is sensitive to the spirit, someone whose life is guided by the spirit. This person, if their spirit is in tune and in communication with God's pneuma, can live a life that is infinite, has infinite purpose, and will live on forever. And he calls that person the pneumaticoi, this person who has a soul, and who is in tune with that soul, and who is following and, and living up to the urges that that soul is putting out, to, to live in the way that God created us to live. Because that soul is sort of like a spark put in us. It's the image of God inside of us. It's beautiful. Um, they're being guided by the architect of creation. That's why I sang this song this morning, because I love that. They're being guided by the one who actually laid out the paperwork for how things should be done. And they're, like, and, and they're the only person basically saying, well, I'm going to do what it says on the blueprints. The way things are supposed to work, I'm going to live in that way. Um, they don't wonder why they are here. They don't sit around going, what's the point of life? They know what it is, and they're living in that way. They're striving. They're heading that direction. They're filled with purpose and fulfillment. Then he says there's this other person called the sukikos. This is someone who is led by their natural urges. In other words, they're living just like an animal. They're hungry, they eat. Um, They want something, they take it. doesn't matter who they oppress to get it. Um, They want a certain life, they're going to strive for it. They have sexual urges, they're just going to live them out. No second thought, nothing has any meaning, nothing has any infinite way of connecting with us. They're living as if all they had was the soma and the suke. He says, Paul calls them sukikos. Um, Verse 14 talks about them. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He doesn't understand them because they are, I want to say, pneumatically discerned. And they don't have, they're not following their pneuma. They're not living and doing what that thing inside of them is telling them to do. We all know things are wrong. Yet we suppress that in our mind. We're suppressing our pneuma. And we just decide to live by the Spirit. All right? This is a discernment. Uh, this, is, this is the person who is, who is led by their animalistic urges. Whatever he hungers for, he eats. Whatever urge he has, he acts on. Um, he takes what he wants, when he wants it, because there's nothing more important, no higher existence than themselves. And the world, and here's where it gets weird, the world is trying to teach you, just like in Paul's day, that you're an animal, and that that's all there is to life. You have a soma and a suke. The pneuma is something that we made up a long time ago to keep us from offing ourselves, just killing ourselves. Okay, so if we can get back to the, if we, if we, they, they tell us that if we can get back to the idea that that no, we're just, we're, we're just here for no apparent reason. Then it can justify a lot of the things that they do that they want to do. And this is, you felt this. I know you have. You felt the world telling you, there's no such thing as a soul. There's no such thing as eternity. You are here. You will die. That is the end. You are just like your dog. Just like it. Except you realize it. We are animals. We are no different than anything else that exists. And with that, they have shrugged off any and all responsibility to morality and greater purpose. Morals no longer apply. Right and wrong suddenly is what you decide is right and wrong. Just don't let it affect me. 
Morals, they just don't apply anymore. There's suddenly no reason, think about this in society, there's suddenly no reason really for a father to support his children or a father to support the mother of his children who loves them and is struggling to raise them. He has no moral obligation. Lots of animals do that. Just take off. And so, that's all I am, I'm out. There's suddenly no reason for a man to commit himself to one woman because it goes against his urges and his suke. Look, it's built inside of me to, to lust after lots of women, so I'm going to pursue all of them. This kind of teaching is, is very, very bad for, for, for women and children. A society that, that, that teaches this kind of stuff is very adverse to women. Very much so. Um, quite frankly, if we free ourselves from the burdens of our pneuma, which, yes, a pneuma is a little bit of a burden because it, it puts a little bit of guilt on you and, and, and makes you realize you, there is a way to live. Then we're on our way to destroying the conscience that nags at us relentlessly and tells us there is a greater purpose, there is a greater meaning. Your actions matter and you will answer for them. Because if we can get rid of that last part, then you're free to do whatever you want and not feel bad about it. It's easy to become so involved in the world that nothing beyond the world exists. It's easy, even for Christians, to get so wrapped up in their life and the goals they have here to for, that they forget that spiritual things even matter, that there are spiritual goals, that there are spiritual ways to live. There is sanctification. We are supposed to be moving forward in our life. Um, we can lose sight of eternal things in the face of temporal things. We must pray to always have the mind of Christ. We must always let the Spirit of God be in connection with our spirit. We must leave that thing open. A lot of those sins you struggle with in secret that nobody knows about, all that is is you separating and severing that tie just for a moment of your pneuma to God's pneuma, your, your deep to God's deep, your spirit to God's spirit. And you're saying, for a little bit here, this doesn't exist. This is not here. I'm going to suppress this so that I can do what I want and later on, you come back around, you want that connection back, and you're riddled with guilt, and you're repenting, and you're weeping, and you wish you had never severed that connection, and, 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 and you're, you're repenting to make it right. Because so often, throughout our daily lives, we choose to ignore the connection that is there. The connection's not really severed. You're just stifling the Spirit of God within you. That's all you're doing. We must let the Spirit of God be in connection with ours. We must never close God out for certain moments when we would rather Him just not be present. I don't want God to be present right now for this, so I'm going to close Him out. We must work daily to build a bond that is stronger and stronger and to dwell more and more in daily communion with Him. Um, these last two verses are, are, are actually kind of, um, kind of difficult here. I'm going to read it. In, uh, I'm going to read verses... Uh, hold on. Verses 15 and 16. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself, but, but is himself to be judged by no one. I'll read that again. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I was looking around for better translations because I feel like I sort of grasp what's going on there, but it's, it's hard to get. Um, the best translations I found, the one that, that really made it the most easy to understand is N.T. Wright's translation. Uh, there it is. He wrote this. A spiritual man exercises his judgment on the value of all things. I'm going to stop there for a second. 
Spiritual man exercises his judgment on the value of all things. The person who is in tune with his spirit, with his pneuma, his soul, as he goes through life, whatever is in front of him, he exercises judgment on the value of that thing. Gold and silver. The world says that those things are vastly important. The person in tune with his spirit, who is connected to God's spirit, looks at that and says, that's only as important as what it can do for the kingdom of God. And then the world looks at a person who they, maybe they're from a race that they don't like, maybe they're from um, uh, a creed, a race or creed that they don't like, Uh, maybe they're from, maybe they're just a person that they had a bad experience with, and they stand in front of that person, and all they can say is, I do not like that person, I hate that person. The person who is the spiritual man, he exercises the judgment on the value of all things. So he stands in front of this person who he should, as a member of the world, hate for whatever reason. Instead, he sees the real value of what is standing in front of him. That person is vastly important to God. That person is made in the image of God. That person needs to know reconciliation with God through Jesus. So what he's saying is, basically, and this is brilliant, I never got this until this week, this person walks throughout the earth, and at any moment of the day, they can look around and see whatever's in front of them and understand the true value of that thing. And think about what that means for your relationships. Think about what that means for your life. Think about what that means for your life goals. That thing you're striving so hard to get. If you were really in tune with your spirit and your spirit was really connected with God's spirit in a way that was really guiding you, would that thing really have as much value in your eyes? Would that person have more value to you in your eyes? A lot of us, there's somebody in our lives that we would gladly walk away from forever if someone offered us a million dollars. I'll give you a million bucks to never see them again. Okay. The spiritual person would see the situation and say, but that's worth more. That person's relationship with me is worth more than that. The spiritual man exercises his judgment on the value of all things while nobody else can discern the truth about them. The world is incapable of doing that. The world is incapable of seeing the value in everything. Incapable. Only someone who is in touch with the Spirit can truly gauge the value of what is standing right in front of them. Perhaps you're here today and your choices have been made from your suke and not your pneuma. Your choices have been made from that side of you that is just that animalistic living by your urges. I want this, I'm going to get that. And that's how you've, you've made your choices to this point. When really you should have been in touch with God and, and making your decisions that way. Maybe you need to go back and apologize for the actions that you've taken. Maybe you need to repent of the way that you have been striving and living. Gossip, theft, abandonment, tarnishing someone else's character, jealousy. All of these things are a product of living by our suke and not our pneuma. Perhaps you need to change course on a decision that you're making right now because you realize that your spiritual side was never involved in that decision. What is the last really big choice you made? The big decision that's determining the direction of your life. And I want you to ask yourself, did I really decide that with my soul connected to God's soul? Did were we really in communication when I made that decision, or was it just what's, what's for my existence, what's good for my comfort? Maybe you need to take control of an area of your life that you've essentially blocked God out of. You don't let God in there. When you're in that mode where, where you have 
more or less been denying the existence of God. You know he's real, but just for a small period of time here so I can do what I want, I'm going to deny that. And you've smothered the spirit that is in you, but it's speaking to you. This is what Paul's getting at. And it's deep and it's heavy. And so what better way to meditate on this than to take communion? We take communion every single week. Um, This is a way of us to repent together, to get a right view of God together. Um, We take a few minutes and we spend some time in prayer. And um, we ask God to reveal to us the things that need to be revealed, that, that we need to repent of. And then we come on up and we take a piece of bread, we dip it in the wine, and we say, Father, I do this to remember you, the sacrifice that your son Jesus made on that cross to reconcile me to you so that I could be in connection with you, with the Father. And we eat it, we take it inside of us as if we're taking the gospel down inside and we ask it to make um, every week a permanent impact on our lives. And we take some time to remember what was done for us. Um, if, you're not a, if you're not a follower of Christ, I would ask that you not take communion because you don't understand what you're doing. You don't understand the importance of it. You don't grasp it. Um, if you are a follower of Christ, if you would call yourself a Christian, then please come take communion with us. I would welcome that. Um, you don't have to be a member of our church. So um, are we ready for communion? Yeah? Okay. So our communion servers are going to come forward, and um, we're going to have two up here and then two in the back. And uh, take some time, talk to God, um, pray about what he's leading you to pray for. Maybe you need to talk to some people and confess some sins to each other. Um, This is part of the Christian community, confessing sins to each other. We are all the priests of God. And then you look at the other person and you say, you know what's so great about this? In the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. And we celebrate together. So um, take some time, talk to God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You're a holy God. You're a wonderful God. Um, continue to lead us, guide us, change us, teach us to dwell in your spirit every single day. Thank you, God. In your name, amen.